It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, an invigorating gallop through our favourite stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, and coming up, you get the house, I get the car... But who gets the tech giant when the world's richest couple divorces? A night ride with the rebel bikers of Yangon. And why modern work is just so miserable. But first, our cover. Last week, the British government's plan to exit the EU was roundly thrashed in a parliamentary vote. Today, Theresa May will outline her plan B. But it too has little hope of being accepted wholesale in the Commons. Our cover leader laid out how the Mother of Parliaments got itself into the mother of all constitutional crises and how we might get out of it. Three years ago, in the biggest poll in the country's history, Britons voted in a referendum to leave the EU. Yet Parliament, freshly elected a year later by those same voters, has judged the terms of exit unacceptable. The EU shows little willingness to renegotiate. The Prime Minister ploughs obdurately on. And if this puzzle cannot be solved by March 29th, Britain will fall out with no deal at all. We urged Parliament to start by stopping the clock. Because Mrs May's deal is dead and a new one cannot be arranged in the ten remaining weeks, the priority should be to avoid falling out on March 29th with no deal, which would be bad for all of Europe and potentially disastrous for Britain. If Mrs May will not ask for an extension, Parliament should vote to give itself the power to do so. It would be a desperate and unconventional move, but Britain and the EU will need more time if they're to reach agreement. Either a permanent customs union or a Norwegian-style model, which this newspaper endorsed a year ago as the least bad version of Brexit, might squeak through. But both would demand compromises, such as Britain relinquishing the right to sign its own trade deals or maintaining free movement, that contradict some Leave campaign promises. Which is why we argued that the path to any deal must now involve the voters. The will of the people is too important to be merely guessed at by squabbling MPs. Parliament's inability to define and agree on what the rest of the country really wants makes it clearer than ever that the only practical and principled way out of the mess is to go back to the people and ask. But ask what? Subscribe for unlimited access to our analysis as the drama continues to unfold. The first 12 issues are just $12 or £12 if you go to economist.com slash radio offer. An ocean away, the American government also finds itself in deadlock. The partial shutdown is easily the longest in American history. President Trump says he's doing exactly what he was elected to do and he won't budge until funding is approved for a southern border wall. But at what cost? On our Money Talk show, US economics editor Sumeya Keynes broke it all down for us. First of all, there's all the stuff that the government is supposed to be doing that it's not doing because of this shutdown. 
And second of all, there's the impact of the workers who were supposed to be paid, but they don't have that money. And so there's this concern that that will have this ripple effect throughout the economy. The impact of that spending cut will be will be horrible for the people affected. But in terms of putting that in context of the overall US economy, it's not going to be massive. Obviously, as the shutdown goes on for longer, then perhaps we'll see those effects increase. If you're digging into your savings to cover you know, your outgoings, then maybe that becomes harder the longer the shutdown goes on. The acrimony and blame thrown around on Capitol Hill reflect deepening mistrust in American society. The latest episode of The Economist Asks looked at one particularly worrying trend, a huge spike in reports of anti-Semitic incidents. Our guest, Deborah Lipstadt, first made headlines for facing down a libel charge after she accused a British historian, David Irving, of Holocaust denial. She told us how the massacre of worshippers at a synagogue in Pittsburgh last October has changed Jewish life in America today. I hope Pittsburgh was a one-off, uh, but it scared Jews very much. No responsible synagogue today does not have some sort of guard in front of the door. Now, whether that guard could stand stop someone with an automatic weapon, I doubt it. You know, uh, President Trump's first comment was, well, if the Tree of Life synagogue had had a guard, things might have been different. Yes, they would have been different. There wouldn't 12 people would have been killed instead of 11 people. Do you think you could stop an atrocity like Pittsburgh happening again? Yes, gun control. That's a whole other issue. There will always be haters there, but it's the weapons that haters have to do their damage. That was Deborah Lipstadt on The Economist Asks With Me. It's a show where we ask the big questions. It's every Thursday from Economist Radio. The Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland has been bashing particles together to see what happens for just 10 years but already scientists are dreaming of bigger and better things. The future circular collider will be four times the size and ten times as powerful. Our Babbage podcast asked science correspondent Alok Jha, how do you even begin to contemplate building such a thing? You have to think 20, 30 years in advance because you not only have to design something which um, is feasible scientifically and useful, but then you have to bring on board pretty much every country in the world because these things can't be built by one nation. Really, these are international experiments that take lots of political as well as scientific will. And also, you have to basically design completely new materials to make these things function. So the Large Hadron Collider you know, had to design new, new magnets, uh, superconducting magnets, which had never been done before, which took 20 years of research and development, had to design new ways of collecting data. So, you know, the web was invented in CERN in 1989 as a way of for particle physicists to share information. So you, you need to f- sort of fundamentally design new science and new physics to do the actual experiments. And if you like reaching the cutting edge and staying there, subscribe to Economist Radio on your podcast app for a daily delivery of our shows. And while you're with us, please do take a moment, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think of us. Turning back to the print edition, we find our Myanmar correspondent roaming the streets of Yangon long after sunset, listening for the roar of a motorbike. Late at night, Klo Habin likes to don his biking jacket and take to the roads of Yangon on his Yamaha Easy Rider. The other 15 members of his gang, the Free Riders, cruise alongside, wearing leathers embroidered with their logo. But for now, they can only taste that freedom at night because Yangon is almost unique in Southeast Asia. Motorbikes are illegal. 
Across the region, motorbikes shift everything from steel piping to families of five. All that has been oddly absent in Yangon since 2003. Shop owners rely on cars and vans to restock their wares, clogging up narrow side streets. In other Southeast Asian cities, startups deliver everything from meals to massages by motorbike. In Yangon, the fledgling industry relies on cyclists. Well, it's one way of cutting congestion, but the benefits are unlikely to last. A study by Hiroki Inaba and Hironori Kato of the University of Tokyo estimates that the ban lowers traffic volume by 18%. That proportion, however, is forecast to shrink to 5% by 2035, as incomes rise and more people buy cars. The case for restricting the freedom of the free riders will only get weaker as Yangon grows richer. We'd all like to be a bit better off, but with great wealth come even greater problems. And as a rather extreme example in this week's business section. When you have loving and supportive people in your life, like Mackenzie, you end up being able to take risks. So declared Jeff Bezos, boss of Amazon, the e-commerce giant, last April. This affirmation by the planet's richest man of the contribution of his wife of 25 years to the company, she was in the founding team, takes on a new significance now that the power couple is preparing to split. Without a prenuptial agreement, the divorce of the world's richest couple could be the most expensive in history and shape the fortunes of one of the world's biggest companies to boot. In the state of Washington, where the couple mainly live, Ms. Bezos is entitled to half of her husband's $137 billion fortune. Mr. Bezos controls only about 16% of Amazon and has no special voting rights. His stake could be cut to 8%, though Ms. Bezos may accept some cash or put her shares in a trust, changing the balance of power with the largest institutional investors. Vanguard has a 6% stake, for example. We suggest the best defence for Mr. Bezos may be to bury himself in his work. A recent survey by Stanford found him, and not Tesla's Elon Musk, to be the most difficult CEO to replace. For now, the love affair between Mr. Bezos and investors is still going strong. If there's slightly less love lost between Mr. Bezos and some of his employees, a new book reviewed in this week's issue might explain why. Lab Rats by Dan Lyons is an entertaining takedown of how the tech industry has changed working life for the worse. Most startups, he writes, are terribly managed, half-assed outfits run by buffoons and bozos and frat boys. Worse still, they offer little job security because of the way they operate. All they have is a not very innovative business model. They sell dollar bills for 75 cents and take credit for how fast they're growing. In some sectors, employee loyalty and job security are fast going out of fashion. Patty McCord, director of human resources at Netflix, was astonished when a woman burst into tears when she was fired. She wrote a book saying that employees should no longer expect their company to help them with career development or acquiring new skills. The chapter about sacking workers had the title, People Very Rarely Sue. Is there a kinder but still competitive way? Mr Lyons thinks there is. Nurturing a reputation as a good place to work helps recruit better employees. Instead of obsessing about unicorns, startup companies worth more than $1 billion, the author thinks the world should look for zebras, which can turn a profit and improve society at the same time. 
but which are possibly just as rare. That's the end of this week's tasting menu. And as ever, there's plenty more where that came from at economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.